And uh, we're going to just start with a quick prayer, and we're going to get right into the study of Scripture. This is a big week. Uh, It's a big presentation. It's a big week for us because this brings us to the end of our third of seven chapters, right? We've been through the beginning. We've been through family. Now we're at the end of Exodus. This is the last sermon that I think it's one of nine. I think it's the last of nine sermons in the Exodus chapter that sort of make up this section of Scripture where the descendants of Abraham have gone into Egyptian captivity. They've come out of Egyptian captivity. And the gift was not only the law, the Ten Commandments, not only the gift of freedom and of sovereignty, uh, but the gift of the sanctuary, which we talked a little bit about last Sabbath and we're going to talk more about today. And then we'll begin the next chapter, which is the land. And of course, this is simply following the basic flow of the Old Testament, that after the Israelites came out of Egyptian captivity, they spent the better part of a year at the base of Mount Sinai. They received the law, they received the sanctuary, and then the, the goal was, or at least the intended purpose was, for them to go and overtake and inhabit the land. But as we're going to learn, that is a rather circuitous journey, one that does not go directly from A to B, so to speak, but makes its way through C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, all the way to Z. And uh, that's where we'll be going uh, beginning next week. So we're wrapping up our section on Exodus today, or the Exodus movement, and it should be really, really good. So I'm just inviting you to pay attention, and uh, let's see if we can't learn something about how good God is this morning. Amen? Father in heaven, we are anticipating your presence. You've been with us in the music. You've been with us in that beautiful children's story. And Father, now we we come to you and we present ourselves to you uh, in the study of the Word. And we want to better understand Scripture. Father, at the end of the day, we are here to fellowship. We are here to socialize. We are here to sing and to pray. But we're also here to learn. And that's a big part of worship is to to love the Lord our God, as Jesus said. With all of our heart, we've done that, that emotional connection, but also with all of our mind. And so, Father, now we pray that you'll give us that intellectual, emotional connection, that we'll look at the text and we will emerge not just better, but brighter more aware of your goodness and of the great plan of salvation as revealed in the sanctuary. And uh, we're expecting your presence, and so we ask that you'll give it to us now in the person of your spirit. In Jesus' name, let everyone say, amen. All right, we're going to start with just a little bit of review here. And I had several people ask me if my wife was back. She is back, uh, but she's not here today, unfortunately, because I have, uh, my youngest son is very sick. He just get, got back from his week-long trip down to Canberra with the year six students from TVAC, and he was sick the whole time, right? So can you imagine, get down there, looking forward to all of this fun, and he basically spends the whole trip puking his guts out. So uh, anyway, he's back now, and now he's at home puking his guts out. So we're just thrilled to have him back. And uh, we were trying to decide between myself or Violetta who should come to church today, and I won out. So we're going to talk about the sanctuary, and I want to start by maybe, oh, five or ten minutes of, of reminding and reviewing uh, what we covered last week, and sort of reorienting ourselves to the great paradox of the sacrificial system. And the paradox is presented in this way. We have come now to the book of Exodus, and basically the latter third of the book of Exodus. There are 40 chapters in the book of Exodus. And from about chapter 25 to chapter 40, the latter third, it largely revolves around the very specific instructions and details that God gave to Moses and ultimately to the children of Israel about the construction and the ceremonies surrounding the sanctuary. It needs to be built in just this way. It needs to be oriented in just this way. There need to be these certain materials and only a certain uh, group of people, the, the, the descendants of Aaron of the house of Levi can minister in the sanctuary, all of these particulars. And uh, that's not only the latter third of the book of Exodus, it's also basically the whole of the book of Leviticus. We're going to talk quite a bit about the book of Leviticus today, though we won't get a lot into the text, and you'll see why in just a bit. So the paradox is this. God gives these very specific instructions, detailed instructions about the sanctuary system which revolves around sacrifice, animal sacrifice, 
And yet, there are many passages in Scripture, and we noted this last week, where God says He doesn't want animal sacrifices. And so we're presented with a paradox. Which is it, God? Is it that you do want these sacrifices and you've given us an elaborate and complex system of how to present them? Or is it that you don't want the sacrifices? Or is it some combination of both? And uh, I'm going to read you just a few texts that we actually looked at last week. But last week we didn't pay particular attention to the specific words that we're going to look at this morning briefly. Uh, Not all of the same texts that we looked at last week. And again, this is not all of them that suggest that God does not want sacrifice, but this is a representative sample. And probably the best known is found in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, where God says, David speaking to God says, For you do not, and can you see that word right there? Desire. For you do not desire sacrifice, David says, or else I would give it. You You do not, what's the next word? You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart. These are God you will not despise. Notice the, the importance of those specific words, desire and delight. Okay? Hang on to that. Look at the next one here. This is from Isaiah chapter 1. To what purpose, uh, God says to the prophet Isaiah, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? Why are you coming, he says, I have had enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and of the fat of fed cattle. I do not, and here's our word again. What's the word? Delight. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. And a final one here, this one from Micah. Micah chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Micah the prophet says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be, and what's the word here? Please, that's another word that intimates the same basic idea. You do not delight, you are not desired. Is this the kind of thing that would please you? So we're talking here about pleasure. What God wants, what his preference is, what brings him happiness, we could say. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil, Shall I offer the firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And so one of the paradoxes that we're presented with as we come to the end of of Exodus here, when the gift of God to Moses and to the Israelites was the sanctuary, is this sort of irony, this this paradoxical notion that God both sets up a complicated, uh, maybe that's too strong of a word, sets up a relatively complex system, an elaborate system of sacrifices revolving around animal sacrifices, And then has the audacity to say in several places through the prophets, I don't want those sacrifices. They don't bring me pleasure. They don't bring me delight. I don't desire them. Well, what's going on here? Well, we then went through sort of the basic structure of how we arrived at the sacrificial system. I mean, the sacrificial system is introduced to us in the book of Genesis, and we're told basically nothing about its origin. God never says, okay, 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 here's what's happening. This will become hugely important for us in just a bit. Here's why you present your sacrifice, and here's what the sacrifice means. Moses doesn't tell us that. He just says, oh, there were these two brothers, Cain and Abel, the descendants of Adam and Eve, and one brought a sacrifice that was acceptable, and one didn't. Moses gives us no background, no backstory. He just assumes at some level that we will understand that Genesis is part of what the Jews call the Pentateuch. Pentateuch means five books. Right? The Pentateuch is the first five books of Scripture. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And that none of those books can really be understood in isolation. I want to say that again. None of those books can really be understood in isolation. The book of Leviticus would make zero sense without its being surrounded by Genesis and Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. The book of Exodus would make no sense if we didn't have the book of Genesis to set up who Abraham is and why we should care. And the book of Genesis would only get us part way through the, into the story. It would leave us in a coffin in Egypt with the demise of Joseph. No, no, no. Moses understands that rather than being sort of five books, this is like five chapters or five volumes of a single series. And so when we come to the book of Genesis, we're not given any, an explanation, any particular explanation about the purpose of sacrifice or even the origin of sacrifice. Moses leaves that for later in Exodus and also in especially Leviticus. What we are shown in the book of Genesis is this is the progression of the sacrificial system, right? First of all, in Genesis 3, God made them coats of skins, right? So that requires the death of an animal. 
Then, as we've already mentioned, Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, one brought an acceptable, the other an unacceptable offering. Then Genesis 8, after Noah comes off the ark, he offers uh, a sacrifice to God. Then Genesis 15, in the confirmation of the covenant, God tells Abraham to bring five animals, and they were sacrificed. And then we come to Genesis 22, and Genesis 22 is the logical conclusion of the way that a sacrificial system would go if we didn't have Exodus and Leviticus. And that is to say, hey, look, if God wants my best lamb, and if I can't bring one with a spot or a blemish, he wants my best ram, my best bull, my best goat, well, what if I've committed a really terrible sin, a really egregious sin? I mean, this is, this is next level stuff, or I really want to show my supreme devotion of God. Maybe I should go from the stockyard rather than just offering animals, and now I go into my living room, and I'm going to offer my son. Now, as crazy as that sounds, that's exactly the point that Micah makes here at the end of chapter, uh, at the end of uh, verse 7 of chapter 6. Look at what he says here again. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oils? Would I offer my firstborn, my child for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? It's a logical progression, and we mentioned last week that child sacrifice is something that is fairly uh, common. Um, in some cultures, uh, uh, it's, it's even rampant in history. You just do a little bit of research on it, and it's a terrible, repugnant thing. In fact, there's a passage in Scripture that we noted last week where God says He never commanded any such thing. In fact, not only did He not command that you shouldn't offer your child, He God said, this never even came into my mind. I find this repulsive. I find this disgusting. And yet, we're confronted with the reality that right in Genesis 22, in the progression of sacrifices, God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, and offer him as an offering. And, you know, this is completely out of left field for us. We would have a very difficult time reconciling what we now know about God with any sort of sense or command that we say, oh, I'm going to offer, you know, land and I'm going to offer Jabel. None of us in this room would do that. Because we now know what Abraham at the time didn't know, and that is just as Abraham was about ready to plunge the knife into the chest of Isaac, the voice comes from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, you're in the midst of a colossal misunderstanding. Abraham, Abraham, don't even... Lay your hand on the boy. Don't touch the boy. Don't hurt the boy. Don't harm the boy. And God forbid, certainly, don't sacrifice the boy. And at just that moment, a ram was seen caught in the thicket. And Abraham, you can just imagine the parental relief he would have felt, right? At the very moment of getting ready to slay his own son. And Abraham, don't touch the boy. And at just that moment, here's a ram caught by his horns, and we talked about the significance of that last week, in the thicket, and the ram takes the place of Isaac, right? And Abraham would have felt relief. Isaac, of course, would have felt huge relief. And Abraham was so relieved by this reality that he names the top of that mountain, Mount Moriah, incidentally, the very place where the temple would later be built. Solomon would build the temple of God on that very mountain where Abraham had offered Isaac. He names the place Jehovah Jireh or Yahweh Yareh. God will provide. And the message here is, yes, a message about Abraham's faithfulness. Yes, it's a message about Abraham's obedience. All of that is there. But there's a larger message here, and that is that God does not want child sacrifice. He never did. He says it never even came into his mind. God doesn't require this kind of sacrifice. Rather, he provides it himself. Right? This is the great message of what's taking place here. God will provide. He does not desire sacrifice. He provides sacrifice. Now along this note, and this will be our final point of review, and then we're into new territory. We ask the question, how many parties are involved in the sacrifice of Jesus? Is it the Father and Jesus and sinners? Is it God and Jesus and sinners? That would be a three-party atonement. Or is it merely God and sinners? Well, the point here, beloved, is that if the atonement is a three-party sacrifice where God, the Father, really wants to, I'm using, you know, anthropological language here, anthropomorphic language here, God really wants to pour out His wrath on sinners, but instead He chooses to pour His wrath out on Jesus. 
And that's the good news. That's the gospel, beloved, that, that God really wanted to pour his wrath out on you, but he chose to pour his wrath out on somebody else. Let me tell you right now, not only is that not the gospel, that's not good news. Right? That's not God news that says, well, I was going to do it to you, but instead I'll do it to you. And now I've, you know, my anger is gone. I've assuaged my anger. My anger is assuaged. It's appeased. And now I can accept you guys. You would not feel comfortable spending eternity with a God who would effectively sacrifice his own son. I mean, if you wouldn't do that, are you more moral than God? Are you holier than God? Are you more merciful and kind than God? The answer, of course, is no, you're not. So what's happening there? Well, what's happening is that Jesus is God. Can somebody say amen? So what's happening is that God himself pays the penalty. God himself doesn't require the sacrifice. He becomes the sacrifice. And this is where Abraham, though he himself didn't know it, as he was walking up Moriah's mountain, as Abraham is walking up Moriah's mountain, and Isaac says to him, hey, where's the lamb? Dad, there's the wood and, you know, there's the knife, but where's the lamb? And does anybody remember what Abraham said? God himself will provide a lamb. Now listen to this. this. This phrase, God himself will provide a lamb, can also be rendered like this. God will provide a lamb himself. God becomes the lamb. And so what we have at the top of Mount Moriah and what we have through the whole sacrificial system here is not a bloodthirsty God. He's not the God of the volcano with lava billowing over and smoke, you know, uh, shooting to the skies like, I need more blood. Bring me your cows. Bring me your bulls. And if I get particularly frustrated or enraged, bring me your virgins and throw them into my fiery cavern. No, that's not the God of Scripture. The God of Scripture is not requiring this sort of ridiculous child sacrifice. In fact, we're going to see a huge point that I learned just this week on this. Giant point. There was a particular God in the Old Testament, two in fact, I use lower G gods, that required at times child sacrifice. One God's name was Moloch, and the other's name was Baal. We're going to see that in just a second. That'll become huge for us. All right, so we closed last Sabbath by saying, last Sabbath sermon, The God of Scripture is not a bloodthirsty God, but a bleeding God. He does not require blood. He gives it. Can somebody say amen to that? All right. Now, with that in mind, I want you to come with me to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus 25. We're into new material now. And now we're going to ask the question, well, then what's going on in this building? I've got here an artist's conception of what the sanctuary may well have looked like. I can tell you right now that the artist's conception is off at least in several particulars, one of which is the, the scale is all wrong here, and I'll show you that in just a second. The size of the courtyard relative to the size of the inner sanctuary that contained two compartments, what was called the holy place and the most holy place, the scale is off. And I'll give you a diagram here in just a moment, a sort of top-down view of what the scale actually looked like. But Before I can show you that, we need to do a little bit of explanation as to what's happening here with this building. Why was God so specific, so insistent about the nature of this building and the nature of the sacrifices that were offered there? And uh, we're going to go to uh, Exodus chapter 25. And in Exodus chapter 25, we find God saying, we'll pick it up in verse 1. Exodus chapter 25, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. From everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins, and acacia wood, oil for light, spices for the anointing oil, for sweet incense, onyx stones... To be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. Now you might be thinking to yourself, well wait a minute, how do slaves have access to all of this material that required wealth, right? Gold and silver and blue and purple dye. These are the things of royalty. These are the things of of affluence and of wealth. Well we know, as we've just read before, that when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they took what was rightfully theirs. Some people have been troubled by that. They said, man, God told the Israelites to steal. He didn't tell them to steal. He told them to reclaim the property that was theirs all along, the property that had been illegitimately and even illegally taken from them by Pharaoh. 
And so when they went out, they were poor in Egypt as slaves, but when they went out, they went out with great goods, with great rich, and they would have thought, man, look at me, this is going to set me up now for my future. I've got a nest egg now. I've got gold, or I've got silver, or I've got these certain garments, or, or the beautiful wood, right? And now God says, hey, say to the children of Israel, bring me an offering. And notice he doesn't say, bring me dirt and and, and bring me some stones. Now, well, there were stones, but they were precious stones. And there was gold and there was silver. Bring me of the best. To what end, God? Do we, should, we, should we light them in a fire? Should we bury them in the earth? Should we make an idol out of them and bow down and worship them? To what end are we bringing these, these material offerings, physical things like wood and stones and gems and gold and silver? Verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell with them. Verse 9, according to all that I show you, that is the pattern. That's a key word here. The pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all of its furnishings, just so you shall make it. So the offerings weren't to go to just some, you know, burning or to some, you know, construction of an idol or something. They were to build a house, build a building. They were to build a building, but not just any building of their own fancy or their own preference. They were to build a specific kind of building. God calls it a sanctuary, and he tells Moses twice. He says, you will build it according to the pattern. Not only will the building itself be according to the pattern, all of the furnishings that will go in the building, all of the furniture will be according to a pattern. To a what? To a pattern. And it's fascinating. Stay in the same chapter. Stay in the very same chapter. Jump down to the last verse of that chapter. So 25, Exodus 25, verse 40. And see to it, God speaking to Moses, see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mount. Now this is hugely remarkable. When it says the pattern that was shown you, this immediately alerts us. Two, two things here alert us to the fact that this was not Moses' architectural design. It wasn't something that he came up with. That Two things are, are in play here. Number one, it's a pattern, which means it's a, it's a copy or a miniature, a model of something else, number one. And number two, God says, that I showed you. I showed you something, and I want you to make a replica of that on the Sinai desert floor. Now, that word pattern there comes up several times in not only the writings of Moses, it comes up in the rest of Scripture, including the New Testament. In the New Testament, in fact, we have this sort of saturative biblical idea here that this wasn't just any ordinary house, it wasn't just any ordinary building, it wasn't according to Moses' architectural fancy. God was very specific and very particular about the way that it should be constructed, the dimensions in which it should be constructed, and then beyond that, the furnishings that would fill it, and then beyond that, the specific ceremonies that would be conducted in this house. Hugely specific. And that's why the book of Leviticus is a little tricky to read, as, as is the latter, half of the, the latter third of the book of Exodus, because it reads like an instruction manual. Right? Who buys a fancy electronic device, a new flat-screen television or a computer, and says, man, I can't wait to dig into that instruction manual. You know, great reading. Sit down in front of the fire with a warm glass of tea and the instruction manual, right? Who wants to do it? Nobody wants to do that. And the book of Leviticus is a little tricky to read because that's what it is. It's an instruction manual. There's not really a plot. There's not really a story. It's just like do this and then do this. And all of these particulars that strike us in 2015 in Australia as, as ancient, antiquated, arcane, dusty, and frankly unnecessary. You know, we read it, we're like, man, I'm so glad I'm born in the New Testament times. I'm so glad now that all I have to do is put my faith in Jesus. So glad I don't have to, you know, know exactly what kind of sacrifice to bring under exactly what kind of circumstances. And I'm glad I don't have to know that. Well, it is true that we are not actively participating in the ongoing sacrificial system as the Israelites were. That doesn't mean that what's taking place here is somehow unimportant for us. It's actually hugely important for us because it will, as we're going to see, illumine something that's taking place not just on the Sinai desert floor or in Solomon's temple or in the second temple. It's actually shedding a light on something that's taking place in heaven. That's taking place, what did I say? In heaven. In other words, this is the pattern, Moses. It's the pattern. It's the representation, the picture, the miniature of what's taking place up here. That is the shadow, this is the substance. 
Now, with that in mind, that sort of basic understanding of what the sanctuary is, let me kind of explain to you what's happening in the sanctuary. First of all, the sanctuary consists of three major areas. And the three major areas are the outside, this sort of courtyard out here. And that's what it's called, the outer court or the courtyard. And then there's a house here, right? A tabernacle. And inside of that house or tabernacle, there are two rooms, right? There's the first room that you encounter, sometimes called the holy place or the outer sanctum. And then there's the second room, which is toward the back. And that is the most holy place or the inner sanctum. So you have three basic areas here. Courtyard, inner, outer sanctum, inner sanctum. Or courtyard, holy place, most holy place. Now there are several mar- remarkable things that will immediately strike you. The first is, is that there is only one place of entrance. There's not numerous doors. And this is, this is very important. I'll just contrast that with, for example, when we get to the New Testament, when John sees the New Jerusalem, Right? In all of its splendor and in all of its glory, when John sees the New Jerusalem in the book of Revelation right at the end, he describes the New Jerusalem as having, strangely, 12 gates. 12 gates. Right? Three gates on each side. And this is remarkable because no city in ancient times had 12 gates. It would, it would be suicide. Right? It would be like a massive you know, security threat to put 12 gates on something. Most large cities in ancient times had one primary gate and then a secondary gate and then perhaps some smaller tertiary gates but you wanted to minimize the number of gates because your wall was your place of protection it was your point of of keeping people out and so you wanted to limit the the number of points of access right and so when we come down to the new testament and we see the new jerusalem john sees in all of its glory and, and majesty 12 gates alerts us to this amazing reality that god wants people to have access to the new jerusalem Can you say amen? God's not trying to keep people out. In fact, John actually makes this fascinating little notation there in Revelation 21. He says, the gates never shut. What? No, we don't shut these gates because these are not gates to keep people out. These are gates to let people in and we put 12 of them on the city. But the temple is not that way. The temple had a single point of access a single point of entry, and it was a point of entry that faced east, always east, right? You entered a single gate, a single way. There was not multiple ways to approach God. And one of the things that emerges from the tabernacle is that God is very particular, very specific, not just about who approaches, but how they approach and when they approach and and under what circumstances they approach. God is sending a message here. I want to come dwell with you, saying to the Israelites, I want to dwell with you, but I can't just show up in your neighborhood. It's not like moving from, you know, Kingscliff to Kulangatta. No, this is different, man. I am moving from heaven where there is no sin, there is no death, there is no rebellion. I am coming from the splendor of glory, and I am stooping, condescending to come down into your midst. And I'm happy, I'm desirous, I'm willing to dwell with you, but it will be under many and particular specifications. Well, we might say, why? Why is God so particular? Why is he so persnickety about it? Well, we're going to see that one of the reasons is that God is sending a very strong message about the nature of sin and the nature of death. The nature of sin and the nature of death. Now, I should just say here one quick word. In terms of the total volume of material that there is in Exodus and Leviticus and other places about the sanctuary, we're going to present about one-tenth of one percent this morning. I mean, we're literally scratching the surface of the surface of the surface. One of the most difficult things about preparing this sermon was deciding not what to include, but what to leave out. And you have to leave out so much material in order to make what is apparently a very complicated reality but to show that in its basic essence, it's actually very simple. And I want to show you the simplicity of it. And in order to emphasize the simplicity today, I'm going to have to leave off a lot of details. Okay? But for our purposes at this point, it's a building that was made after a pattern that consisted of three parts. Okay? The outer court, the holy place, and the most holy place. There were priests that officiated here. 
And they officiated primarily in the outer court and in the holy place. But the high priest could go annually into the most holy place on a very specific day, a day called the Day of Atonement. Now, just a brief word about the Day of Atonement. We'll come back to it. The Day of Atonement, does anybody know where the chapter is in Leviticus that shows up and sort of describes in detail the Day of Atonement? Anybody know that one? I heard somebody say it. It's Leviticus 16. Now, here's the interesting thing about Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16, and this has been noted by both Christian and Jewish scholars. It's right here. Leviticus 16 occurs at almost the very center of the Pentateuch. Now, I've already told you that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Leviticus is not only the center book, but the Day of Atonement is the centerpiece of the book, book of Leviticus. So in a, hugely, in a hugely significant way, spatially significant way, the Day of Atonement is at the very center of everything that Moses wrote. The whole story of Abraham, the story of the Exodus, the story of, of, of uh, everything that we have in overtaking the land that we're going to be getting into, all of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, of all that Moses has to say, where he puts the most, arguably the most important thing with regards to the Israelites in the sanctuary and, and the whole story of God's covenantal people is right in the center. Leviticus 16, surrounded by equal sides, roughly equal sides on both ends of the Pentateuch. Now, that Day of Atonement was a special day because it was the only day that the high priest went into the most holy place. All right, we're getting slightly ahead of the, slightly ahead of, uh, of the sermon here. Let's back up just a bit. First of all, according to Angel Rodriguez, he says the Israelite sacrificial system was God's gift of love to his covenant people. Now, that's a bit of a tough pill to swallow, frankly, when you think about it was a hugely bloody place. It was a place of death. It was a place of blood. It was a place... I'll tell you a cute little story. I'm a vegetarian, have been since I was 17 years old. And uh, except when I'm in Alaska, then I eat fish. Uh, it's sort of a, you know, when in Alaska, do as the Alaskans. But apart from that, basically a vegetarian. And have been for a very long time. And my good friend Nathan Renner, who also became a Christian at the same time that I did, he's preached in this church, he also became a vegetarian at the same time. Well, on a few occasions, he and I have been in various places where we've been hanging out, not just with regular vegetarians, but like with really pious vegetarians, like super, like vegan Pharisees. And uh, there are none of them in this church, I'm sure of that. Um, Maybe some vegans, but not some vegan Pharisees. And one of Nathan's favorite things to do, and this, I've seen him do this at least twice, is we would pull up to, say, I don't know, like a strip mall somewhere or a place of, you know, like we were going to go shopping. And when we get out, there'd be like a McDonald's or like a Ruth's Steakhouse or something. And as soon as you'd step out of the car, you know, you would just smell the smell of, of a McDonald's or of a, or of a barbecue. And, uh, you know, often the sort of very pious vegetarians would be like, oh, disgusting right? And Nathan would always preempt that sort of disgust, that reaction of disgust, and he would step out of the car, and if he knew that we had some particularly pious vegetarians with us, or even if we didn't, he would often just go, ah, the smell of the sanctuary. <laughs> because the truth of the matter is, is that that's exactly what the sanctuary would have smelt like. It would have smelt like an Australian Barbie, right? In fact, in some ways, that's what you have here. You have your courtyard, and you've got the barbecue right there, right? You bring the... Because fat was offered on that, and flesh was offered on that. It would have smelled like a restaurant, right? Like a place where they cook a lot of meat. The priests were eating the meat. They were cooking the meat. And it was a big, bloody, meaty place, right? So it's a bit of an unusual place to call that kind of a place God's gift of love to His covenant people. What a strange sort of way to think about it. Well, I thought, I feared this might happen, but uh, let me sort of describe to you what you're seeing here. What you can't see, unfortunately, because our projector is, is having a bit of a fit right now. This is an overview of the sanctuary looking down. Notice that the dimensions are very different from this. Notice the relative size of the tabernacle here versus the, say, size of the outer courtyard, right? It fills up most of the outer court. But you go here... And this is, a f this is far closer to the actual dimensions of what is described in Exodus and Leviticus. So this here 
is the outer courtyard, okay? The outer court. This is looking down on the building that it's divided into two parts. This line shows the dividing between the most holy place, the inner sanctum, the holy place, the outer sanctum. This is the laver where the priests would wash. It was a bloody work. It was a messy work, so there needed to be some water around. And this is that outer altar, or like the barbecue here. Now, what you don't see, unfortunately, it's actually on the slide, but you can't see it, is that this division right here down the middle makes two perfect squares. Okay, I want you to feel that. There are two perfect squares that you put together and you make the sanctuary. And the, the entrance to the second square lines up exactly with the door to the, this, the, inner, the outer sanctum, then all into the inner sanctum. Now, there's several things that are hugely important about this. And the first of which is, if you were to take and draw a line from here to here on the first square, it would find its center in the altar. And if you were to do the same for the second square, draw a line from here to here and also from here to here, the very center is the Ark of the Covenant, right? So what we're dealing with here, even though there are three compartments, and this is huge, this is the basic point of everything we're going to talk about today. Even though there are three compartments, there are two sides, there are two basic notions, two basic services, and those can be communicated very simply as the daily, the yearly, and the daily. Okay, so the first square deals with things that happen on a daily basis, right? And the center of things that happen on a daily basis was here in the outer court where the sacrifice was made and also where the fat was burned. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute, on a daily basis they went into here, and that is absolutely true. But the center of the daily sacrifice was right here. The sacrifice is made in this area, the blood is sprinkled on the altar, whereas... The center of the yearly sacrifice, the Day of Atonement that took place in the Jewish calendar on the 10th uh, day of the seventh month is right here in the most holy place centering on this box, this golden box that contained the Ten Commandments called the Ark of the Covenant. Now this is very simple here. I want to keep this as simple as possible. There were two primary services that, minist- that happened that took place ministrations that took place in the sanctuary. The daily service, the center of which is the, the altar, and the yearly service, the center of which is the Ark of the Covenant. Does that make sense? Now, with that in mind, I'm going to read you several statements here from this book, and I'll tell you a little bit more about this book at the end as we wrap this up. This is a book called Cult and Character, written by Dr. Roy Gain, Okay. And I'll tell you more about this book in just a second. But before we do, I can just say that this book is representative or represents um, more, than a, more than a decade of study under a Jewish man by the name of Jacob Milgram who died in 2010 but was widely considered the world's, listen to this now, the world's foremost expert on the book of Leviticus. The world's foremost expert on the book of Leviticus. He was a Jew, not a Messianic Jew, not a Christian, a Jew, right? So, so he taught at the uh, uh, Center for Near Eastern Studies at the University of California at Berkeley. And then Roy Gain, the author of this book, went and studied under Jacob Milgram for more than a decade. He went in as a young man, 23-year-old, young Seventh-day Adventist kid who'd heard his dad, who was a pastor, talking about the sanctuary, the cleansing of the sanctuary. Jesus is coming soon. And he got interested in it. And went and studied under the, I want to say it again, the world's foremost expert on the book of Leviticus for more than a decade. And then he wrote his doctoral dissertation, and then that book grew out of that doctoral dissertation. Now, I can summarize in just these few quotations up here the basic point of this book, okay? So the book is a distillation of more than a decade's worth of study under the the world's foremost expert on the book of Leviticus. And I'm going to give you the paragraphs, because I've read the book, that summarize the book. Okay, here it comes. Pay attention, because this is the whole point. At the Israelite sanctuary, sacrifice maintains equilibrium between justice and kindness as Yahweh, God, extends forgiveness and restoration to the faulty people among whom he condescends to dwell. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may come and live among them. Okay? Sacrifices throughout the year and the special rituals of the Day of Atonement enact a, and this is key, 
two-phased process of reconciliation. This is giant, and it's the only point in the sermon today. Of two-phased, how many phases? Two-phased process of reconciliation, reconnecting between the Israelites and their divine king, in which his holy balanced character is revealed. He's basically saying, okay, the sanctuary, it balances justice and forgiveness, and it takes place in two phases. Here's the second quotation. This is at the close of his book. Dr. Gaines says, I have demonstrated that the system of purification offerings also enacts a two-phased process of reconciliation between faulty Israelites and their divine king, which reveals how he spares the loyal ones for retribution without compromising his justice. By emphasizing the cost of kindness as represented by rituals at the heart of the Israelite religion, the sanctuary makes a profound contribution to biblical theodicy by portraying Yahweh's character as he deals with people of both loyal and disloyal character. And finally, I have discovered key evidence pointing to two major phases of sacrificial purgation for sin, both of which are accomplished through sin offering sacrifices. Now this is key. The first phase removes the sin from the offerer. The the second phase removes the same sin from the sanctuary on the Day of Atonement. Okay? Two phases. The first takes the sin away from me, puts it in the sanctuary. The second phase takes the sin away from the sanctuary and puts it in the wilderness. If you understand that, you understand the book of Leviticus. If you understand that, you get it. That's the point. That there's two phases here to the whole system. All of the priests, all of the offerings, all of the rites, all of the rituals, the whole thing. Just keep boiling it down, 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 boiling it down. You don't have to go study the better part of 15 years under the world's foremost authority on Leviticus. No, I'm telling it to you right now. This is the summary that when the, 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 the sacrificial system in the sanctuary was given to the Israelites, God was communicating two basic ideas. 359 days out of a Jewish year, the sin goes off of the offerer. And one day out of a Jewish year, they had a 360-day year, one day out of the year, the Day of Atonement, the sin goes not off of the offerer. That already happened. The sin goes out of the sanctuary. To even further simplify it, for the youngest of the young to get it, 359 days out of 360 days, the sin is going in to the sanctuary. And one day out of 360, the sin goes out of the sanctuary. That summarizes years of research, and and not just years of research, but the actual text of Leviticus and Exodus. Now just this week, Mark was very generous to have me in early Monday morning to get an MRI, right? People keep asking me, what's wrong with your knee? Well, we don't know yet, but we know something is wrong with it. (laughs) We're trying to figure that out. And... I went in early, and and Mark very graciously penciled me in, and and we went in, and and I saw the doctors and did all of that. And it's not easy to see from this picture, but for those of you that have been in an MRI, uh, this was my first ever. Now, this was a big moment for me. I had to document it. We had a little cake. I'm kidding about the cake. Um, If you look at an MRI, and unfortunately this picture doesn't fully show it, it actually looks super simple. It's a tube. How many here have been in an MRI? And it's just, it's a tube. Am, am I right, Mark? It's, it's just, it's a tube. Now, here's the interesting thing. What separates that tube from, say, these tubes? Right? I just go crawl in one of those. And Mark stands at the, you know, the, the entrance, and I say, I come out and say, what's wrong? I say, well, you know. Okay, what separates these two tubes? Because when you look at this tube from the outside, it's actually very simple. General Electric, I think that's who makes it. They've, they've put a plastic fascia over it, a plastic covering over it, so that you don't see what's actually going on. Y- you just see the plastic covering. It, it doesn't look much different than like a straw or a simple uh, a concrete pipe that I just put up there a moment ago. But if we were to, and I'm sure you might have even done this, Mark, if we were to start taking panels off, there would be layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of electronic complexity, computer-generated complexity, magnetic complexity, the laws of physics and of, 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 of many other things would be put to work, but all of that complexity is covered up with a very simple fascia, right? Just, just a very simple covering so that what it looks like to me, to the uninitiated, I'm crawling in a tube 
and then I come out, and now I know something about my body that I didn't know before. Of course, if I crawled in one of those tubes, I wouldn't have the same level of revelation. The sanctuary is just like this, and I want you to think about this here for just a moment. If we didn't have the sanctuary, salvation would just be a big black box. What would we know about it? We would know nothing about the mechanics of salvation. We would know nothing about how it works or why it works or why God seems to be making seemingly really unreasonable demands like offer your firstborn son on Mount Moriah. We would be scratching our head. In fact, our religion would be no different from the religion of animists and spiritualists and traditionalists down through the decades and centuries that have thrown virgins into volcanoes. You've got to appease the angry God. You've got to assuage the, the, the regional deities. Christianity would be no different from that if we didn't have the sanctuary. God would say, bring me a sacrifice. Uh, 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 okay. But what God does in the sanctuary is he says, come here, come here. Come on, come on, come on. Show and tell. Come here, I'm going to show you what's going on. I'm going to disclose. I'm going to reveal. I want to show you in a pattern, in a model in a miniature, I want to show you in ceremony what's taking place in substance in my presence. Why would God do such a thing? Well, there are a variety of reasons, but the chiefest of which, in my opinion, has to be this, that God is not the kind of God who ever says, ah, never mind. How many times do we say this to our children when they ask us a question? Maybe we're tired. Maybe we're feeling a little ornery. Maybe we just don't know the answer and we're embarrassed to say so. Kids ask us something. We're like, oh, just never mind. See, never mind is an off-putting way of saying, I don't want to tell you. Either I don't know or I'm not in the mood to tell you or I'm tired by your, you know, perennial questions. I don't want... God never says, ah, never mind. What God says is, oh, let me show you how salvation works. Let me show you how an infinite holy, infinitely alive, God has never been dead except in the incarnation, and that's a whole other issue in Christ. God condescended to become a man so that he could die. But God in himself, God in his person, is impervious to death. That's the whole point of the book of Hebrews. It says that Jesus became a man so that God could do what he couldn't otherwise do, die. So God is perfectly alive and he is perfectly holy and God says, come here and let me show you how a perfectly alive and perfectly holy being can come and dwell in the midst of a bunch of sinful, dying, dirty people. And here's a great point. We often think of the sanctuary as a place that you came if you committed a sin. You know, you stole your neighbor's shovel and you were sorry about it so you brought, a, you brought an offering, you brought a sacrifice. It is true that the sanctuary was for dealing with moral impurities. But the sanctuary, a huge part of the sanctuary, was also for dealing with ritual impurities. Really weird stuff to us. Stuff like this. If you touch a corpse, you must go through this certain ceremony and present yourself to the priest. Bring an offering. Why? If you touch the body of a dead animal then you have to bring this certain offering to be cleansed, to be purged. And we look at that and we're like, I don't understand. It doesn't make any sense. You see, beloved, the church is not, excuse me, the church. The sanctuary was not just to get rid of moral impurity. The sanctuary was also to get rid of ritual impurity that came, now watch this, from contact with death. You see, sanctu the sanctuary is God in his infinite holiness and in his perfect life condescending to live amongst a bunch of people who are dead and dying. And death is, is God is impervious to death. He, how does the perfectly alive one come and dwell in the midst of a camp that's saturated by death? And furthermore, in the midst of a sanctuary system that is itself built around death, sacrifice, blood, fat, offerings. And God basically says, I'm at war here. I'm at war with sin and I'm at war with death. And if you come into contact with either, you can't just come waltzing happily, merrily into my presence. Okay, here we go. Let's go over to God's house for a game of Settlers of Catan. God's like, no, doesn't work quite like that. You come into my presence, and it happens like this. With this specificity, and with this offering, and with this sacrifice, on this day, presenting in this way. And God is not being arbitrary. God is not being capricious. What God is saying is, come take a look at the MRI.
Let me show you as a physicist or as an electronic engineer might show you, oh, David, that's not just a big piece of plastic. That's not just a plastic tube. Oh, no, there's something going on in there. There's something big and dynamic and awesome and frightening and beautiful and amazing that's taking place inside of the sanctuary. Now, I want to leave you with a final point here, and then I'll release you to the day. Roy Gaines says, at the heart of the Pentateuch, that's at the heart of the five books of Moses, the Israelite sanctuary system characterized Jehovah, Yahweh, as a just ruler. In short, this is where God sits enthroned as the king. This is the kind of God that I am. This is how I rule. This is why I rule the way that I rule. And again, all of this is in symbol pointing to the thing that is substance. And when we come to the New Testament, the lid begins to be peeled back. The, 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 the MRI machine begins to be deconstructed right before our very eyes. And we see Jesus and his ministry manifest in three particular capacities. And time does not allow us to get into it here, but I'm just going to give you a flash. This is the trailer version of what Jesus did. Jesus is the lamb. Kylie's about ready to sing about that. Jesus is the lamb. John, his elder cousin, said, Behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But a remarkable thing is that Jesus wasn't just the lamb in the outer court. He's the priest. He's the priest that ministers the blood of the lamb. And I remind you, his own blood. Not the blood of a child. Not the blood of somebody else. His own blood. Not requiring an external sacrifice, but providing a sacrifice himself. But Jesus is not only the dying lamb, and he's not only the interceding priest, Jesus is also the returning king. He is the ruler. This is his throne. This is how he rules the universe. This is how he administers justice. This is how he administers forgiveness. This is how he administers mercy. The whole thing is on display in this marvelous spiritual MRI machine called the sanctuary that, that to us, if this wasn't available to us, if there was no Exodus, if there was no, no Leviticus, we would just have to trust God. Ah, oh, just trust me. It'll all come out in the wash, God says. Just trust me. Well, how would we know? How would we know who we're dealing with and what kind of a being we're dealing with and whether he was actuated by kindness or by power or worse yet, by caprice? God says, no, 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 no. I want full disclosure. I want full transparency. I want full vulnerability. Come here. Come here. This is how I rule. This is how I reign. This is who I am. Come and see. Jesus is lamb. Oh, and check this out. As lamb at the altar, he delivers us from the penalty of sin. As high priest, he delivers us in the holy place from the power of sin. Through the table of showbread and the altar of incense. All of this, we, didn't, we, we have no time on that. We're going to have a whole series on the sanctuary later. But as the king, he delivers us from the presence of sin. And so in a remarkable way, as you move through the sanctuary, God says, okay, dealt with the penalty in the outer sanctum dealt with the power of sin in your life, getting victory over sin and that besetting struggle that you have, that thing that just won't let you go. No, we're getting rid of that by the bread of life and by the oil of the Holy Spirit and the incense of the righteousness of Christ. But that's not good enough. It's not good enough just to be delivered from sin's penalty and sin's power. One day in the not too distant future, God says, you know what? I'm gonna deliver you from sin's presence as well. And that's what happened on the Day of Atonement. All of this sin had been going in. All of this sin had been going in, going in, going in. And on the Day of Atonement, God says, okay, it's now all going out. And I just learned something very interesting this week. The word forgiveness, when an when a offerer would bring his lamb, would bring his offering, and he would receive forgiveness in the outer court. Here's a remarkable point. The word, Levitic, the word forgiveness doesn't show up anywhere in Leviticus 16, in the Day of Atonement. Never. Because the Day of Atonement was not a day of individual forgiveness. That had already happened. The Day of Atonement was the day where the sanctuary itself, where all of that sin had been deposited, where all of that sin had been transferred. The forgiveness has happened, past tense. And now the sanctuary itself is cleansed. The Israelites were delivered from the presence of sin, anticipating the time when Jesus will, in His power and in His glory, Come and deliver us, not just from the penalty, not just from the power, but from the very presence of sin. No more rape, no more murder, no more oppression, 
No more war, no more injustice, no more drones, no more night vision goggles for the purpose of blowing people into little bits, no more landmines. It's gone. He delivers us from the presence of sin. I made a big and bold statement last week, and I want to stand by it, and hopefully you can see it here. That Seventh-day Adventists believe they have something really important to say about Exodus and Leviticus. And you might have wondered, well, what is it? What is that important thing that we think we have to say? It's very simple. Sin goes in, and sin goes out. Not a one-phased atonement, but two. The transfer in, the transfer out. The cleansing of the offerer, the cleansing of the sanctuary. And here's the point. If we're right, if we are right in our interpretation, I'll just say a brief word about this book, and I'll invite you up in just a second. The remarkable thing about this is that Roy Gain, Dr. Roy Gain, who teaches now at the uh, seminary in uh, uh, Andrews University, spent more than a decade studying under Jacob Milgram. Jacob Milgram, as I've already mentioned, is a Jew. He wasn't a believer in Christ, but he was the world's foremost authority on the book of Leviticus. And when, when, when Roy Gain went to study, he just wanted to know if the Adventist position on the sanctuary, namely a two-phased atonement, if it was defensible. It, 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 does the text support it? Is, it? is it actually there, or is it just something that we've invented to save face so that, you know, in 1844 when William Miller thought Jesus was coming soon, ah, he got it wrong and we did a quick cover-up with the sanctuary. That's basically what Roy, wanted, Roy Gain wanted to know. Now, here's the remarkable thing. Gain spends the better part, the more than a decade studying and diving into the book of Leviticus and particularly the Day of Atonement. When he emerges on the other side of that study, he presents his basic thesis, which much of which was in harmony with Milgram's own understanding and, and, and thesis in and around the sanctuary, but with significant departures. And the main departure that he had was that he advocated a two-phased system. Sin going in, sin going out. Sin going off of the offerer, sin going out of the sanctuary. Now here's the interesting thing. When Gain submitted his dissertation and it passed and he got his PhD and then he later wrote the book, I heard him tell the story with my own ears. He said that he went in to his senior professor, Jacob Milgram, who passed away in 2010. And he said, well, you know, Yaakov, what do you think? And this is what he said. Young Seventh-day Adventist boy showed up there years before learning to study Hebrew. And at the end, the world's foremost authority on Leviticus looked this young, now older Seventh-day Adventist now newly crowned doctoral candidate in his, in his eyes and said something like this. Well, Roy, if I'm not right, you certainly are. In other words, your system explains the data as good as any and perhaps as good or even better than my own. In fact, he says on the back of the book, I read you Milgram's endorsement of Gaines' book. Gaines' book is a marvel of close reading and impeccable logic. It is the first major critique of my own work, and I am immensely happy and proud that it was done by my students and that my contribution is so comprehensively acknowledged. This is a major work and will be the standard for a long time. Now, beloved, I just want that to settle in. Just to settle in, because as I said the other day, and you might have thought I'd lost my mind, If Seventh-day Adventists are wrong about Leviticus and Exodus, we are wrong about the sanctuary. And if we are wrong about the sanctuary, then we are wrong about Daniel. The idea that the 2300 days culminated in 1844. And if we're wrong about Daniel, we are wrong about Revelation. And if we're wrong about Revelation, we really shouldn't be here this morning. Because we're wrong about basically everything. But the converse is also true. If Seventh-day Adventists in their interpretation are right about Exodus and Leviticus, namely a two-phased atonement, that there was the time where it went into the sanctuary and the time where the sanctuary itself was finally cleansed, then we are right about the sanctuary. If we're right about the sanctuary, we are right about Daniel. I'm not talking about every detail. I'm just saying in the general thrust. If we're right about Daniel, we're right about Revelation. And if we're right about Revelation, then we have a message for the world. Can somebody say amen? So, beloved, at the end of the day, it comes right down to this massive point. I'm going to have the deacons distribute these connect cards. You can start right now, guys. It comes down to this massive point about Jesus and his various capacities. Out here in the outer court, he is lamb. 
Here, he ministers as priest, giving us the victory over the power of sin in our lives. And here, he returns as King of kings and Lord of lords to deliver us not just from sin's penalty and power, but ultimately to deliver us from sin's presence. And I want to close with this. This is the final quotation, I promise. There are many of us who are very persuaded that Jesus is coming soon. And I want to tell you, if you think Jesus is coming soon and you're sitting here today as a Seventh-day Adventist, even if you don't know it, the reason you think Jesus is coming soon is based on Daniel chapter 8. Even if you couldn't explain it, I want you to know that as a Seventh-day Adventist, if you're sitting here today, if you're not a Seventh-day Adventist, we're glad you're here. You're welcome as a visitor, but I'm speaking now in-house. If you're sitting here as a Seventh-day Adventist today, you are here because a bunch of people thought that Jesus was going to come based on a prophecy found in the book of Daniel. That's why you're sitting here today, okay? If you yourself are like, man, Jesus is coming soon. Look at the signs of the times. Look at, look, the world is coming to an end. Jesus is coming soon. Let me tell you, the larger context in which you believe that the soon return of Jesus is just around the corner is built, strangely enough, on that old MRI machine found back in the book of, the latter third of the book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus. And even there, I want to read you this quotation. Because some people might be inclined to think, man, we need to be hearing more. Jesus is coming soon. It's the end of time. Why aren't we hearing? Just listen to this. I leave you with this final quotation from one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Ellen White, she writes, The shortness of time is frequently urged as an incentive for seeking righteousness and making Christ our friend. Jesus is coming soon. The world is going to collapse. The whole thing, the wheels are coming off right now. Big catastrophe just around the corner. I've been hearing it for the last 20 years, right? You have too, probably. The shortness of time is frequently urged as an incentive for seeking righteousness and making Christ our friend. This should not be the great motive with us for it savors of selfishness. What? The motive should not be urgency. The motive should not be our sense that Jesus is soon to return. This looks like selfishness. Why? Watch. It is, is it necessary that the terrors of the day of God should be held before us, that we may be compelled to right action through fear? It ought not to be so, she says. Jesus is attractive. Now somebody better say amen. If Jesus is not motive enough, there isn't motive enough. Jesus is attractive. He is full of love, mercy, and compassion. He proposes to be our friend and to walk with us through all the rough ways, the pathways of life. Jesus is attractive. And I want to tell you, as strange as it might sound, there is no place that more fully illumines the attractiveness of Christ and the attractiveness of God than that strange, bloody, opaque system found tucked away in the book of Moses called the sanctuary. Father in heaven, what a beautiful story and a beautiful song. And the good news, of course, is that it's not just a story, it's not a fable or a fairy tale, it's the great truth of the universe. That God became a man and condescended to die in the place of sinful men and women. And Father, we don't pretend, I certainly don't pretend to fully understand all of the details and all of the idiosyncrasies of the Levitical sanctuary. But Father, it's there for us on display. It's there for our study. It demands our attention, our scrutiny, our evaluation. And Father, we see there that you, though living and perfectly holy, have condescended to come and dwell amongst a dying and sinful people. And we see that your glory and your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness breaks through the miasma of sin and death, breaks through the atmosphere of this world and creates a new reality. And Father, you entrusted that reality to Israel and then you entrusted it to Christ and then you entrusted it to the church. And Father, today, whether we recognize it or not, we are the beneficiaries of this marvelous plan. So simple and yet immeasurably and incomprehensibly complex. Father, today we come to the outer court by faith, believing that our sins are forgiven by the Lamb of God. 
But we are not satisfied to remain at the outer court. We come also by faith boldly into the holy place where we meet and see Jesus, our high priest and intercessor. But Father, we also come with fear, trepidation, and yet hope and confidence into the most holy place where Jesus, our elder brother, ever lives to make intercession for us. And Father, we see there that he's not presenting the blood of another, the blood of a third party, but that he presents his own blood. And we are accepted in the beloved. And Father, this beautiful picture of lamb and priest and king alerts us to the fact that you have comprehensively saved us, that you have, you have paid attention to every detail, that no stone has been left unturned in our salvation. You will deliver us not only from the penalty, not only from the power, but also from the very presence of sin itself. Father, help us to take this amazing message and to internalize it and then to externalize it, to believe it in our innermost souls and then to share it with enthusiasm with those around us. Thank you, Father. We give you worship. We give you praise because you are the great Jehovah Jireh. You are the God who provides a lamb himself. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Let everyone say, Amen. God bless you all. Happy Sabbath.